So a few years ago, we were helping my younger brother move into college, and it was me, my mom, and my younger brother. We drove down to Georgia where he was going to be going to school, and we got there the night before, whatever, the morning of, you know, you, you, you bring the car to the campus to unload, to pack it, and uh, I was wearing flip-flops that day, and my grandmother kept, okay, you don't, don't act like you know what's going to happen, okay, it's just, just a regular, random detail, just whatever, just store it back in your mind, and my grandmother kept saying, Dylan, you need to wear shoes. And I kept telling her, no, I don't need to wear shoes. And the reason why I didn't need to wear shoes, because I didn't need to wear shoes, it was one of those things where you would go and you would just like open your car and they would bring it all to the dorm. So I went to a school like that during moving day. So you're not actually moving, right? So if you're, if you're moving, you wear shoes. If you're just like walking into a dorm room, you, why would you wear shoes? What's, why, you know, there's no point. And so she kept telling me wear shoes. I said I didn't need it. And so we go, we, t- we take the stuff out of the car. They bring it to his dorm room and we get everything. Everything is technically moved into his room and I'm fine. Right, the moving process is done. I didn't need to wear shoes. Flip flops were fine, not a big deal. And then a little bit later, we're in the room hanging out and we're adjusting the height of his bed. I think most dorms are like this. Basically, you have like two wooden slabs and you just have like a metal bar and the bed goes on it. And you know, maybe like four feet or so tall. And then the wooden slabs was like these these small little metal bars where you can hook on you can hook the bed to and adjust the height. So the four corners of the bed have like these metal like hooks and they would hook onto it. And so we wanted to put his bed as high as it could be so you could put stuff under it. And so I'm holding one side and he's holding the other side and I hook my side into the top of the wooden frame. Uh, and then he hooks his side into the top of the wooden frame. And uh, as he hooks his side in, I realized my side was not actually fully hooked in. And so it comes out and I just like, I don't know, my brain like knew what was going to happen. And it was slow motion. Like I couldn't move, obviously, but it, like it's slow motion. And like this metal, I mean, this thing's probably 20 or 30 pounds. I mean, it's not light. It just falls. And I know where my foot is and it falls and it hits my foot like bam, right? And in this moment, it hits it, it like bounces up, hits it again and falls off. And I don't remember like how painful it was. I just remember being in shock, like knowing what was going to happen. It was like a volcano, and like, like when, when I say volcano, I mean, don't, I don't mean like the blood was like spewing up, but like a lot of volcanoes, the blood just kind of comes out and just like, like, lo- like volcanoes, the lava just kind of keeps flowing down. Like that's what it was. It just hit it. I'm looking at my foot and it's just like, it's just like a, a flowing river, like just not stopping. Right. And so that's great. In fact, I have a picture. Just kidding. I don't. I actually do have a picture because like, as I'm lying there, you got to get a picture. It's on my phone after service. Come up. I will share it with you. I promise. It's awesome. And so I'm, I'm there, and like the blood is just like flowing. It's just like flowing out of my foot. And so I sit down, and I'm like, I don't feel good. Uh, I think I'm going to pass out because everything started turning purple and dark, right? And I was like, so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I'm going to pass out. I'm going to pass out. And my mom's like, Dylan, don't pass out. And I was like, well, <laughs> well, mother, I don't know if you know this, but it's not something I can control. And so luckily they grabbed my, his roommates, his roommate was there and his mom was there. And so they put the bed, his bed like on the floor and I'm laying down and his, his roommate and his mom like brought all these cookies. So I started eating these cookies and I was fine. I mean, there was like a pool of blood, everything was fine. And, and I survived and I had to have crutches and it was awesome. I've got the scar on this foot and I've got this picture of like blood in a dorm room. So I guess I'd come find out after service. Now I share that story with you because in this moment, my grandmother gave me explicit instructions of what I was supposed to do. And I did not listen. Now, again, technically the move was over. So for what it's worth, we weren't actually moving things. But if I had worn shoes, I probably would have gotten a you know, pretty bad bruise. But the lava flow probably would not have ensued. 
And I share that today because we are continuing our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab one. If not, there's a black one around you. You can read along with us. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. Uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, if you've been with us, you know, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. It's a very large port city in the Roman Empire. And up until this point, kind of one of the main themes of this book is that if you are a follower of Jesus, that should impact how you live. So following Jesus is not just like this intellectual, I believe Jesus is God, but it actually causes me to love people well, to treat people well, to care for people well, the same way that Jesus loved and cared for me. Now, up until this point, I think all of us, Christian or not, would agree, yeah, we should love people, right? That's what we're supposed to do. And so what I love about this next part of 1 Thessalonians is Paul is now going to move from the abstract to the practical. And he's going to give maybe one of the most I don't know, uh, challenging rebukes uh, for us, for really any, for the human beings, no matter when you've lived in any time in history, today, in the first century of Rome, he's going to give a practical example is that if you are a follower of Jesus and you want to love people well, here is what this looks like. And so the question for us we have this morning, that if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, the question is, do we want to do this or is love something we just want to talk about but not actually do? So he's going, to leave a, he's going to give us a very good challenge this morning. Do we actually want to wear shoes or are we going to wear flip-flops when the time comes? So here's what he says. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says this. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that has, as you have received instructions from us and how you should live and please God as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave through the Lord Jesus. So again, it's just this repeated theme. Honor God with how you live. Again, his example is that when Paul and his companions were there, uh, they didn't just talk about Jesus. They lived it out. Now the Thessalonians are doing that. And so he's encouraging them to continue to live out their faith as they have been uh, doing. And so keep on going. And then he gives us an example of how you can do this. Verse 3. He says, for this is God's will, your sanctification that you keep away from sexual immorality. In other words, what he's saying here is that God, it's God's will for you, if you follow Jesus, for your sanctification, which just means if you want to become more like Jesus, grow in the likeness of Jesus, then you should abstain from sexual immorality or you should flee from sexual immorality. Now, here's what I think is interesting. All of us, whether you believe in God or not, you follow Jesus or not, have asked the question, what is God's will for my life? Right? We all want to know what God's will is for our life. Like if he does exist, what do I need to do? How do I need to you know, make sure I make wise decisions so that things work out for me? And so like what job should I take? You know, who should I marry? Where should I live? Where should I go to school? Who should I hang out with? Like there's all of these things. There's many times in our life where we have asked God to tell us what is his will for our life. Now, again, sometimes we can do this from this perspective of like God is a cosmic genie and just tell us what to do because we don't want to make any decisions. But, but I think generally speaking, most often we do this because we have really good motives and intentions, right? If you follow Jesus, right, you want to honor God and you want to make a wise decision and you want to treat people well. And so oftentimes we ask this question, God, what do you want me to do from a good posture? And so again, we ask this question, this unique question, God, what is your will for me? I, I might leave before you this morning, the, the better question for us to ask might not be what is God's will for me, but simply what is God's will? 
What is God's will? And in fact, if you ask it this way, it is a lot more freeing and a lot less restrictive because it's not determinative just on you and the decisions that you live and what you do, right? Instead of saying, what is God's will for me? And just in general saying, what is God's will? means how can I honor God and love people in whatever I pursue or whatever I do? And in fact, and I, in fact I would argue this is a lot more freeing. I mean, can you imagine, like imagine God answered your, your prayer. God, what do you want me to do exactly? Like, who do you want me to marry? Where do you want me to live? What job do you want me to get? Or where do you want me to go to school? Imagine God tells you, here's where I want you to live, marry, work, go to school, all these things. Now, imagine you know this, you know God's will, and then imagine you don't get the job. Or she breaks up with you. Or you don't get into the school that you, can you imagine the weight and the feeling of failure and the feeling that you have let God down and ruined the entire course? Like, it would actually be quite restrictive, in my opinion, if God laid out for you what you must do. And so instead of saying what you all must do individually, instead we see in Scripture, generally speaking, what is God's will for us and how can we honor God no matter what decision we make? So let me break it down this way. Uh, there, are, there are four times in the New Testament where the New Testament explicitly tells us what is God's will for us. And not just like in a general sense of like love God and love people, but it literally says here's what God's will is and do it. So real quickly, I'm just going to read the verses and then I'll explain them. So we see this four times. Once, the first time we see it is in John chapter 6, verse 40. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son believes in him and will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Another time we see it is in 1 Thessalonians 5, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. It says this, Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. A third time we see it is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. Peter writes this, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. And then verse 15, for it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Now, we're not going to get into the context of this here, but he's talking, he's writing this in a time where Christians were actually persecuted. And so he's, what he's saying here is, in the, he's not saying if there's an injustice that you speak, that you don't do anything about it. But if there's times that our government asks us to do things that are not morally wrong or right, even if we don't like it, we should do what is asked of us to be a good witness to our community. And then the fourth and final one, the one that we read this morning, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it says this, for this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away <clears throat> from sexual immorality. And so you could, this, you could sum up the four explicit wills of God in the New Testament this way. Believe in Jesus Christ, right? That's the first one. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that out of his unconditional love and grace for you, he came and gave his life for you so that you could experience God's grace and eternity in his kingdom. Believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, you can also say, give thanks in everything. So in the good and the bad, this is what Thessalonians 5 is talking about, that we thank God for what he has provided for us, even if we don't see his goodness in the moment. That number three, we submit in doing right, right? And so no matter what we find ourselves, again, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you try to honor God and love people well and do the right thing. And then finally, number four, <clears throat> that we abstain from sexual sin. Now, if you look at this list, I just want to present this to you. This is freedom, right? This is freedom. What this means is that you can live, marry, work, go to school, do all of these things without pursuing hobbies, without fearing that you have somehow angered God and that you have somehow made one wrong decision that's completely ruined the rest of your life. What, what he's saying is, believe in me, give thanks in everything, submit in doing right, and abstain from sexual immorality. And if you're doing those things, no matter where you find yourself, you are actually doing God's will, 
Now, if you look at this list, it is pretty fling, fling, uh, freeing, there we go. And, and I think uh, overall, maybe it might be somewhat easy to check off. So, for example, you might say, well, I believe in Jesus. That's good. Uh, give thanks and everything, you know, maybe not all the time, but like generally speaking, you know, when I think about it, I'm, I'm trying to be thankful, so I'm doing not too bad there. Submit and doing right. Again, I'm not perfect, but, you know, if I'm following Jesus, hopefully I, you know, try to love people better than if I didn't follow Jesus, so I might be doing well there. And then abstain from sexual sin, which, if we're being honest, might not be so easy. And so over the next few minutes, here's just what I want us to say. Here's what I want to lay before us. Uh, let's not be a Pharisee when it comes to sexual sin. What do I mean by Pharisee? So throughout the New Testament, I just as a side note, I feel like I should say this, not all Pharisees are bad. Not all the religious leaders were bad. It's not like they were like, they loved God and then became a Pharisee and they were these terrible people, right? But there were obviously ones that were corrupt and were not after following God, but after their own gain, right? And so, but a Pharisee, you know, gener- you know stereotypically speaking, is somebody who says one thing and does another. It's not, it's not about being imperfect, but it's about condemning people for doing the same thing that you actually do in private, right? And so this morning, as we look at what, the, what does the scripture talk about sexual sin, again, if you are a follower of Jesus, let's not act like this is an issue, right? Uh, here's the thing. It affects all of us. And so the question we should ask ourselves then is, how am I doing when it comes to sexual sin? And I don't say this to condemn anybody, although if the Spirit is convicting you, I would encourage you to let him do that. But how am I doing that? How am I doing with sexual sin? Now, throughout Scripture, I just want to be clear. Again, we're not going to, we don't have time to go into it, all of it this morning. But the Scripture clearly presents sexual relationships as things designed to flourish in the context of a committed covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. Right? God created sex. He wasn't, like, surprised by it. He knows how it works. It is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But to, for the best context for it, for it to flourish, for it to be life-giving, is in the context of a loving relationship between a man and a woman. Right? Jesus even talks about if you lust after someone who is not your spouse, you've committed sexual immorality. Paul talks about the leaders in the church. And he, in the first century, he's talking about elders need to be a husband of one wife and not running around. Right? So it's, it's clear throughout Scripture. And so I just want to say that to lead up to this first point as we talk about sexual immorality, and that's this, that God's will is not ambiguous. Our justification for sin is. God's will, what he wants us to do is not ambiguous, particularly in this example of sexual immorality, but it's simply our justification for sin. In other words, you can think of it this way. The question is not what is okay and what is not okay. Or the question is not, uh, what is the most life-giving way to view sex and what is, the, you know, what is bad, right? The question is, what does it look like to honor God, which is Paul's point, and the bigger question is, do I trust him? Right? The question is not what does scripture say about a lot of things. The question is, do I trust God? That's what we have to answer, right? Do we trust that God has a good design for sex and it is not this bad, shameful, ugly, gross thing? But if you want to experience it the way that it's designed to be the most life-giving, do I trust that the way that God has designed it or do I not? That's the question. Not what is okay, what is not okay, but do I trust God's will for it or do I not? Right? That's what it comes down to. Do I trust God with this or not. Just like my did not trust when my grandmother told me that I should wear flip-flops, it came back to get me, right? If I trusted her, it would have changed what I did. Paul's point here is that do we trust God? And if not, then that's okay. Let's just be honest. But if we actually want to love people the way God wants us to love people, how we treat them sexually is a great example of how serious we are about this. In fact, here's what he says. If we continue in verse 3 through verse 5, it says this. Again, for this is God's will. Your sanctification that you keep away from sexual immorality. 
Here's why. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. So what he says here is that you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, should control your own body and don't act like those who do not know who God is, right? Don't live like them. Why? Because he says here that we should be holy, that we should be set apart. That's what holy, holy means. It simply means to be set apart and that you and I should strive to control our own body. So again, again, I'm, primarily today I'm talking to those who are followers of Jesus. So if you're not, just hang out with us. This is, I don't want you to feel like you got to do anything. But if you're a follower of Jesus, here's the question. Is your pursuit of sex and sexuality holy or not? Is it set apart the way God designed it or not? Again, this is not a question to condemn. It's just a question to be honest. We have to be honest to ourselves. Or as Paul says, do you have control over your body or, and or are you at least taking steps in that direction, right? There's a difference between, you know, having a struggle and doing something and pretending it doesn't matter and being honest about your weaknesses, but trying to take steps in order to fight it. So I'll just like, I, I know like pornography, sexual sin, it's a man's issue. It's a woman, it's like, it's all of us, but I'll just speak to the men for a second, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, I do not know, I do not see a way for you to, perfu- to, for you to pursue sexual holiness on your own. Like, it's just not a natural thing that we do, especially in our culture today. It's everywhere. Uh, I tell guys it's, it's really good to have some sort of software that you can be accountable, accountable with to someone else. In fact, for me, I've got a friend of mine that we meet every two weeks just to talk about life. It's a great thing. I commend it to all men. Like, find a guy just to hang out with every two weeks, put on the calendar, non-negotiable. And we have questions that we ask each other. Some of those questions are, did you intentionally look at something you shouldn't have looked at? We also ask each other, did you unintentionally look at something or scroll past something and go back to look at it again, right? You weren't looking for it, but did you go back to do it? Uh, did you do anything inappropriate with a woman who wasn't your spouse? Not in, a, not in a weird way or anything, but like, did you say something? Did you, did you put yourself in a situation that you knew you shouldn't have done? We ask ourselves this because we need it, right? We need to take steps because we cannot do it on our own. And, and I think this is important. And what Paul is getting at here, really what all scripture is getting at when it talks about sexual sin, we also need to understand this, uh, that sexual sin, it doesn't hurt God. It hurts you. So I think we have this idea uh, that God's up in heaven and anytime we sin, he's like, he's like, oh no, I'm, I'm so sad. I'm so like, here, God doesn't need you. He was fine before you existed. He was like, he's been great. And the Father, Son, the Spirit in perfect harmony. Love, like he doesn't need us for anything. Yet, He loves us, right? It's not like he needs you to obey him or else he's just going to be crushed. Now, he will be crushed because he loves you, but not because he needs anything from you, right? There's a difference there. Uh, There's a difference there. It's, It's not like God, again, it's not like God is trying to oppress you, but if it is true, as scripture says, that God loves you, cares for you, created you, and wants you to experience joy and happiness, then when he says, here is what it looks like to pursue these things, it's not to hold it back, but it's to give you more life than you could have experienced on your own. Let me think of it this way. This is not a a perfect example, but think of it this way. This idea that sexual sin doesn't hurt God, it hurts you, and why he cares about it, because he cares about us. Um, I have kids, right? And if you have kids, you want your kids to obey you, right? Really, if you're honest, for two reasons. One, because you want them to learn how to be, you know, functional adults and good people. And so if they obey you, hopefully they're learning as they get older to not be, you know, as terrible as they were when they were born, you know, when they were two years old and, you know, whatever. And so that's one. But also... You want other parents and other people to think you're a good parent, right? Like, let's be honest, right? You want people to be like, that's a good parent, not like, did you see how she talked to her kids? Like, we don't want to do that, right? And so we want our kids to obey us because we want good for them, 
but also because it reflects, you know, us a little bit. And I think that's how sometimes we view sin, sexual sin or otherwise, about God. That God wants us to obey him because he wants good for us, but also he's really concerned about what people think about him. Right? And if we do a bad thing, then like God, like the God, God's upset. And so we have this faulty view. Here's a better way to view it. Again, not a perfect example. Here's a better way to view it. Um, we have, you know, two kids. They're six and they're three. And so we want them to obey us. And there are times where we're going places and we will tell our kids, Finley's six, and so she knows what's going on. Roman's like, kind of does, kind of doesn't, but he's getting there. And so we'll say, hey, we're going to this thing. Remember, here are our expectations of you. I don't care what any other kids say or any other kids do. Here's what we expect you to do, right? Because, again, we, we want good things for our kids. Now, imagine, uh, Finley is kind of getting close to that age, so I know it's going to come soon. Imagine Finley telling one of her friends what she's not allowed to do. And imagine her friend saying to Finley, well, your parents are really strict. And, and, right? and so imagine Finley comes and tells me to this. Guess what? Guess what I'm not, guess what I'm going to say? Maybe I shouldn't say this. Guess what I'm going to think? I don't care what your six-year-old friend thinks. I don't even like kids. Right? I, I mean, if your kids are in New City Kids, I like those kids. Those kids are good. But generally speaking, I don't care for kids. I love my kids and your kids. But other than that, I don't care. Like, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you say. You're six. You're dumb. You don't know anything. Right? I do not care what they think. Right? And, that, and I think that's the better thing. Like, when sexual sin is not like God's like, oh, no, what are they getting? He's like, I don't care what you think. I want good for you in spite of what other people might say, believe, or do. Now, again, sexual sin is a tense thing, and I, and I understand it can bring shame and condemnation. And so I also think it's worth mentioning as we talk about something that, that is, you know, personal and uh, uh, affects all of us. We also need to remember this important truth, that no one loves you more than God loves you. No one loves you more than God loves you. What is the gospel? That in our shame and in our darkness and in our sin, God did not wait for us to, to shape up and to act a certain way and to dress a certain way and to say certain things or to do certain things and to say, okay, now you're good enough, you can come to me. It was in our shame and our sin that God takes the first step towards us and invites us into his grace. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 5. The apostle Paul writes this in verse 6. It'll be on the screen. For while we were still helpless... Not after we had everything figured out. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, not the good people, the bad people. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What Paul is saying there is that people don't generally give their lives for other people. Maybe if you're like a really good person, someone might, you know, give their life for you, but you're certainly not going to give your life for an enemy. And this is what Jesus did for us while we were still helpless, while we went our own way, sexual or otherwise. He said, there's grace for you and me. Come and find me and experience my grace. Don't change anything. Experience my grace and allow me to show you a better way. Right? Again, no one loves you more than God loves you, including you. God loves you more than you love you. God loves you more than your parents or your friends love you. And so sexual sin, like all sin, hurts our relationship with others and our relationship with him, which is why Paul is giving such a tangible example of what does it look like to actually love people well, not just like theoretically think about it. And so again, he says this in verse six, he goes a little bit deeper. Here's what this means. This means that one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we have also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, 
but to live in holiness, to live set apart. Consequently, verse 8, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gave you his Holy Spirit. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that to live in a way where sexual sin does not matter, not that you're perfect, but to say it does not matter, or to live in a way where it does not matter, is to reject what God has asked you to do. And again, this is not a this is not be, be me trying to be condemning to anybody. This is us just need to be honest. Do we actually care what God has asked us to do, or do we not? And what he's again, he's talking to believers here. Remember, believers, not people who do not yet know Jesus. He's talking to believers. What he's saying is that believers should not take sexual advantage of one another like non-believers do. That's the point. That's why we care about each other, that we should not take advantage of each other in a sexual way that other people do. And listen, this is what hookup culture is, right? Even if it's consensual and that's great and they both agree, nobody wakes up in the morning and say, hmm, how, do I, how can I love and serve somebody else, right? Hookup culture is how can I get somebody to serve my needs, to make me feel better, to do something for me that I can't do for myself. It is only getting something from them for your gratification, right? This is what pornography is. Again, it's how can I use someone else to gratify my sin and my desire, right? This is against, this is the antithesis of the great commandment. What is the great commandment? In scripture, Jesus says this, that we are to love God and love people. All of the law and the prophets and the commands can be summed up in this principle. Love God, love people. How can we do this, at least when it comes to sexuality, to not take advantage of other people and to actually commit to love, to serve somebody else and to give our life to them? I mean, this is not a joke. Like I, when we talk to people who are like, maybe they're dating and they're involved in sexual sin, it's like, are you going to get married or not? Like, are we going to do this or not? Because you, people say to me, well, I'm married in my heart. Well, if you're married, like, what does that mean? Like, are you committed or not? Like, even if you're like, I'm engaged, like we plan to get married at some point. Well, then what are you doing? Right? If you actually love this person, and you're not just about your desires and your needs and your wants, you will actually fully commit yourself to somebody to experience their love and grace physically in a million other ways, right? The commitment to say, I'm with you, not for what I can get from you, but to serve you and to love you. This is what it means to love God and love other people. And Paul is giving us a tangible example. Whether we want to hear it or not, whether we want to be challenged or not, this is what it looks like. Because at the end of the day, I think Paul might put it this way, or at least I would put it this way, what Paul is saying. He put it this way. I would say this, uh, that sexual sin is not love for others. <clears throat> All right, sorry, sexual sin is not love for others, but love for self. That's Paul's point here. It's about what I can get from other people, not what I can do for them. Again, this is, there's a difference between rejecting what God wants us to do and falling short and having weaknesses and trying to take steps. Those are two different things. Paul is talking about people who outright live the way they want to live, which is fine, but he's like, let's just be clear about this. We are rejecting what literally God has asked us to do if you are a follower of Jesus. Right? God's designed for sex and going your own way and saying, I reject that. Literally, what does Paul say? You are rejecting God's will for you and what he's asked us to do. And this is not Paul thinking about. This is what God has explicitly revealed in Jesus and throughout Scripture. That is what Paul asks us to do. He tells us to love people. And one of the best ways, the most tangible ways we can love people is to not take sexual advantage of one another's, and to commit ourselves to somebody in love. And so then he says this, the last part we'll read in verse 9 to verse 12. He says, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Again, this is the point of all of this. He's not just trying to random, arbitrarily take some command to shame people. He's just saying, here's a practical example, right? We all want to love people. Here's how you can do it. Verse 10, in fact, 
you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. So, right, the, the province in which they lived, all right, they, they actually are pursuing love and good works, and so he's encouraging them to do that. And he says, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Now, what he's saying here is that as God loves us, we are to love one another. And so Paul here encourages them not to just depend on wealthy Christians. We know this was an issue because in the book of 2 Thessalonians, he talks about apparently there were some Christians in the area who weren't working and just depending on the wealth of others. He's not, he's not anti-helping people in need. He's not anti-charity. He's just saying if you're able to, uh, you should work and provide. Uh, but the point is he's emphasizing that our behavior, a point of all of this in, in these 12 chapters, is he's emphasizing that our behavior reflects Jesus to our community. Right? And how you treat people sexually also impacts this. Right? One of the biggest ways that you can be set apart from the culture is to honor what God has designed for sex. Now, you don't want to be set apart just for the sense of being weird. Like, there's not a badge of honor. Some Christians are like, reject everything in the world, and I'm like my own person. Like, that's, that's weird. Like, don't be a jerk. Don't be weird. But simply ask what God asks you to do, and that will set you apart. In fact, maybe I could summarize what Paul is saying this way, right? Through all of the, the book of Thessalonians up until this point, and even the explicit, you know, gives the sexual example. Here's what Paul is getting at. That a life that honors others is a life that honors God. The point of all of this is that a life that honors other people is a life that honors God. Sexually, uh, and what we do with our generosity and our money, what we do with our homes and our relationships, right? If we actually want to uh, honor God, then we're going to love people. Now, he gives an explicit example here when it comes to sexuality, but you can do these in lots of different ways, right? Am I honoring God with my finances? What does that look like, right? Uh, am I honoring God with how I treat people and, and for giving people forgiveness and giving people grace? A life that honors others is a life that honors God. And remember, we do this not to get something from God, not so that God will love us more, but in re response to who God is and what he has done, right? What did Christ do? While we were helpless, Christ came to give us grace. And in this book, and particularly this chapter, he's talking about practically what does it mean to live this out? As people who have received the grace and mercy of God, what does it look like to honor people sexually? So if you're following Jesus, ask the question, am I living a life that honors others in my pursuit of sex and sexuality, right? And if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning and you've got questions and you're just trying to figure out, the, your next step is not to go change all the things that you do, but instead to experience the grace and mercy of of God, who has a better way and loves you and I right where we are. And so what I'm going to do, I'm, I'm going to pray. Uh, the band's going to come up, and we're going to worship this God together. And so will you pray with me?